Uh, we've been in a, in a series studying the kingdom of God for several months now, and we've been using the book of Ephesians as our backdrop to this study. And the study is, is broken into three parts, and the first part that we've been looking at for several months is we called Kingdom Kids. And we've been examining what the Apostle Paul communicates to the church in Ephesus, and through that letter to the modern-day church now, what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be a kingdom kid. And so as we're in chapter 2, we see a transition or a, a shift in the language and a shift in the topic, and we see the Apostle Paul now moving from talking specifically about individuals and, and how we are, uh, our identity transformed in, as a kingdom kid, now it is starting to talk about us living together as a family. And so this middle part of our series we're calling Kingdom Family. And Dom taught last week, and what we saw last week in his introduction to this idea that the kingdom of God, of the family of God, is that is this, that the kingdom of God looks like a family. And today we're going to continue in this kingdom family part of our study in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 10 through verse 16. And I'll be reading and teaching primarily from the Christian Standard Bible. So if you've got an app, you might want to go to that translation. Otherwise, the, uh, all Scripture will be up on the screen for you today. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 10. The title of the sermon today is Kingdom Family Re Reconciliation. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. And at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God, and in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made no effect the law consisting of commands and express and regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. Verse 16, he did this so that he might reconcile both to God and in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Church, this is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you have spoken, that you have given us your truth in addition, God, we, we thank you that your word is alive and living and active and effective in us and in our relationships, in our families and in our community. And so, Lord, we ask you now, Holy Spirit, to teach us, instruct us, apply your word, the words of truth, to our hearts, to our families, and to your kingdom family here, even at Reality Ventura. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, early one damp, wet, cold morning, American soldiers were exchanging gunfire with German soldiers. This is France, just a couple days after the D-Day invasions 
of June 1944, and U.S. troops were fighting Germans from farm to farm, fighting from hedgerow to hedgerow, pushing, trying to push the Germans eastward out of France. In the middle of a fierce firefight, when, when the uh, U.S. soldiers thought that they had the Germans just absolutely pinned down, the fiercest part of the battle, it was reported, a little girl comes running out of a farmhouse right in between these two opposing groups, right into the center of the battlefield. Immediately, both sides, it's like a, this ceasefire happens, and soldiers from both sides stand up as a sign of peace in order to allow safety for this young girl. Now picture that moment. These tired men that have been pursuing one another, firing at one another, hiding from one another, hungry, brave, cold, stopping and standing in plain view of the enemy in the middle of a firefight. There was a peace brokered in that moment. There was a form of peace that quickly replaced animosity that they had. There was a peace that quickly replaced hatred for the enemy that immediately changed the hardened heart of a soldier that, that trains his rifle on the enemy, changing that hardened heart to a soft, caring, concerned heart. This was a peace that transcended orders. It transcended commands. It transcended politics, self-preservation, and even fear. An innocent child had brought peace into a fierce battle between two world powers that were at war. Uh, this was, alas, a temporary peace, a momentary shared act of human decency on a battlefield, a very temporary reforming, reshaping of a violent relationship between two groups who were completely at odds with one another, but it was nonetheless a moment of peace, a moment of silence, a moment of rest. This is a moment of knowing who we are, or, or who we can be when we're at peace. And I think each of us experiences these little moments of peace even in the midst of some of the fiercest battles we experience in life. And that moment for these soldiers stood as a moment of hope with hot gun barrels in hand, knowing that they're going to be right back at it. But it was a moment of hope, a hope for a peace that might last longer than just what it takes a little girl to run between you. A hope for reconciliation that, man, I can stand up before him for a second, but maybe someday we can find a real peace. A, a hope for reshaping of relationships. And, and when we think of peace, this temporary sort of peace is, is, I think, what we tend to think about because really it's all that we know in this life apart from God. And our text today speaks of a real peace. A, a true peace, God's peace. And this peace of God brings reconciliation, a powerful, radical reshaping of relationships, a reshaping of identity, right? How, how we think of ourselves and, and that place that we operate from, who we are. It's also a radical reshaping of relationships between people, how we relate to one another. This peace that God brings is a, forms a radical reshaping of relationships between God and people. We now are free to approach God because of the cross, and also a radical reshaping of relationships between groups of people. This reconciliation, this reshaping of relationships, it all stems from our identity as kingdom kids, as children of God. Now, in our passage today, it starts in verse 11, what we're looking at, but it, he's pointing back to the previous verse. He's saying, so then, or remember. 
And what is he wanting us to remember? He's wanting us to remember verse 10, which says these words, for we are God's masterpiece. Poema in the Greek. We are God's intentional, thoughtful, masterfully created creation. We were purposely, intelligently, lovingly made by a lovingly God. And furthermore, we were created in His image. We are God's poema in the Greek. Created anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things. We're invited into the good things that God has planned for us to do, to be with God, doing the activities in the world that God is at work doing. We have been made new by God through our faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. And there's something different about how we live in Christ. We are now God's children. We're his kingdom kids. We're now a part of God's family. We have intimacy with God. We belong. We're no longer outsiders. And verse 10 says that there are good things, good things for us to walk in. But before Paul talks about running in these good things, he shows us how to walk. Because who we are affects how we walk. And as a kingdom kid, I walk as a child of God. That's why Paul starts off the letter to the Ephesians this way. If we don't know who we are, then we certainly don't know how to relate to one another. And if we don't know who we are and we don't know how to relate to one another, we certainly don't know how to engage in the things of God. How we walk affects how we run. As I walk, as I walk like a child of God, I will start to run into the good things that God has invited me to run in. And this is why Paul has taken us through the process of being, becoming and belonging and being a kingdom kid, someone who's loved by God. Someone who's chosen by God, adopted by God, changed by God, now living from a place as a child of grace. And before we were given anything to do for God, Paul talks and he goes on and on about how we are to live with God without doing a single thing for God yet. We now live together with God. And we see in our passage today, with others, as a family. This is kingdom family. God has made peace with us through Jesus. We are now reconciled to God. We have a permanent peace between us, sinful man, and holy God because of the cross of Jesus Christ. In addition to that, and God has made peace for us. He hasn't just made peace with us. He has made peace for us through Jesus. So now we are reconciled to one another through the cross. And this peace that he's talking about, this reconciliation that we're able to enjoy now with other kingdom kids is not a temporary peace. It's not like the temporary peace that was struck between those soldiers to help a scared child out of a barn through a field. Those soldiers went right on to fight one another as soon as that child was safely out of the way. Our peace that we experience between one another is eternal. God has made peace with us through his son Jesus, forever removing the dividing wall of sin. And God's peace extends beyond peace with God. We now have peace with God and with one another. Even enemies are brought together through this peace. People who are at odds with one another are now brought together in love through this peace. This is exactly what Jesus was praying about in John 17. It's a passage that's often referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. 
Uh, John 17, I'll read just, just two verses, starting in verse 20. Jesus says, I am praying not only for these disciples, right, the, the 12 that would have been gathered in the room with him. He says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. This is Jesus now speaking into the modern church, speaking into history that hasn't yet occurred. He's saying that, that you, Reality Ventura, I pray that you, in verse 21, that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, Jesus prays, may they be in us. Jesus is praying for a radical unity. He's praying for a unity that requires walls to be torn down. He's praying for a unity that requires differences to somehow not exist in a way that separates people. It's powerful coming from the Easter season because as we looked at the cross that Friday night and we heard again Jesus' words, it is finished, this is part of what he was talking about. I mean, his work of salvation was done. His work of reconciling humanity to God was done. His work of reconciling people to each other was done, completed. His work of recreating humanity as children of God, that work was completed on the cross by giving us full access to the Father. So his work of creating a family where God's children are now able to live together with God was a completed work. It's, it's a historical fact that God accomplished that on a cross 2,000 years ago. Jesus' work is done. And in the midst of our radically individualistic culture, in our American culture, it's good for us, Christian, to hear that Jesus did not save us to better us, Jesus saved us to unite us to himself and to each other. There's a radical unity that was purchased on the cross, a unity with God and with others, with the dividing walls removed. And this is what Paul is communicating to the church in ancient Ephesus. This is a hope and a reality that our present culture is desperate to experience because the same ancient pride and racism and divisions and divisiveness that we see in the culture that Paul is writing into, these things are flourishing in our culture today. And, and it was, this is a, a harsh divide between peoples. Listen to Paul's language in verse 12. He says, at that time, and he's writing to people who were Gentiles, non-Jews, he says, at that time, before, you, before Christ, you were without Christ, you were excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, and without God in the world. Th that is harsh, divisive language, right? Super clear. You were not a part of. You were not welcome. You were excluded, he's saying. We see two groups of people. There are Jews, and there are Gentiles. And that included everybody, because you were either a Jew or you were a Gentile, regardless of where you were from, regardless of your race or ethnicity. Everyone who was not a faithful Jew living under the law of God was a Gentile. Now, this worldview, this exclusive, exclusionary view of humanity is not unique to the Jews in ancient Israel. The Greeks had the same exact view of the world themselves, didn't they? You were either a Greek or you were a 
barbarian, right? That's how the Greeks viewed the world. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care what language you speak. I don't even care how much money you have. If you don't speak Greek, you are a barbarian. He reminds the Ephesians that they were once far away. That is a worldview that they would have been very familiar with. As Gentiles, they were far away from God's promise. Why? Because God had chosen to covenant with the Jews and nobody else. Now, you may be wondering in light of that if, well, gosh, if if God chose to covenant with the Jews and nobody else, then isn't God to blame for the conflict we see between Jews and Gentiles? I mean, if God chose the Jews only, doesn't that mean that God kind of created racism? Doesn't that mean that God kind of created uh, the divisiveness that we see even continuing in our culture today? And that's a fair question. It's a tough question, but it's a fair question. And so uh, let's go back to the beginning of the story so we can have some perspective because I think we need to speak into that question to really get under this idea of unity because there's so much divisiveness in our culture. So first of all, remember that God created the world and he said it was all good. But our sin brought corruption into the world. In Genesis, we see God creating the earth, everything on it, everything in it, everything around it, and he says it's good. Then he creates humanity. It says he creates both men and women, both man and women, in his image. And then he looks at the earth with man and women on it and the stewardship that he had given them, inviting men and women into his work of stewarding the earth. And he says, that is good, good. That is really good. That is very good. Better, way better than earth without humanity. Humanity is not the curse of earth, right? Humanity is God's blessing to earth that we would steward the earth. He says it is good, good. And then, of course, humanity falls into Satan's trap. It's corrupted by sin. Having been corrupted by sin, humanity is separated then from holy God. But that's not the end of the story. God doesn't give up on his creation. Even though his creation had become corrupted by sin, God reaches out in love to redeem his creation from the corruption of sin, which separates us from God. That is what the Bible is about, is God's rescue plan to redeem us from our fall into sin. And God does this by reaching out to a man named Abram. Now, Abram becomes Abraham. God, God likes to change names and give people nicknames. You see it throughout the Bible. Here's a fun fact. Abram, Abraham was a moon-worshipping pagan, okay? He, he wasn't like Mr. Johnny-on-the-spot church attender guy. The guy was like worshipping the moon and the stars and other freaky-deaky stuff, right? He, he wasn't like this super faithful follower of the living God. See, God didn't review or consider the deeds of the person that he chose. That was, like, inconsequential to him. God chose a person by grace, knowing that he, God, would be working through that person. That Abraham would have to act by faith alone. And then here's the story in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord says to Abram, go out from your land. Go out from your relatives. Go out from your father's house. And go into a land that I will show you, okay? In other words, here's a short version. Leave everything you know. Leave everything you have. Leave all the relationships you have. And then once you've done that and you're moving and you're away from it all, then I'm going to tell you where you're going. Step of faith. He says, I will make you into a great nation. 
I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And that is where our culture likes to insert a period where there is a comma, right? Because it's like, yes, God chose me, and he's just this big fat funnel over me, and all the blessings from heaven are going to pour into that funnel, and they're just all going to come to me, and I'm going to live this thing. God's going to bless people that bless me. He's going to curse people that curse me, and here I am in and of myself, with God by my side, I'm this thing. But that is not what is communicated in the book of Genesis. There's a comma right there. And it says, comma, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Look at that verse carefully. It's important because it reveals a truth about God, and it reveals a truth about how God works. God wasn't setting Israel aside with a big fat funnel over it to be the end all of the presence of God. He says, you will be a blessing to everyone. You will bless the nations through you. God's blessings were given not only to Abraham. God's blessings were to go through Abraham. And who are these blessings to go to? Look at verse 13. It says, all the peoples on earth, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples on earth. God's plan from the beginning was to create a multi-ethnic kingdom family through Israel. He had chosen Israel to reach the nations. And throughout the Old Testament, We see people, the heart of God for all the nations revealed, people who are not included in the Abrahamic covenant, non-Jews, but they are included as the people of God, multi-ethnic. The Cushites are included as the people of God, as a non-Jewish people. There's not a 13th tribe of Cush, right? This is a very dark-skinned group of people in the ancient time, included in the family of God. There's the Hittites racially completely different people group from Israel, outside of Israel. And then consider Moses, who was a Jew, but married a black woman from Ethiopia. And not only did God approve of this marriage, he gets angry with those who question it. And so God constantly reminds his people, the Jews, of their calling to the nations. The prophet Isaiah shares these words of the Lord. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says, this is God speaking, he says, it is not enough for you to be my servant raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. God says, I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. See, God is saying, it's not enough for just you to be my people. His plan from the beginning was to reach all the peoples of earth. God chose the Jews for the sake of the Gentiles. But the Jews had completely forgotten their calling. And rather than being a light to the Gentiles, they were more like a hammer to the Gentiles. And by the time of Jesus and and the years of the early church, the Jews were openly hated by the Gentiles. And the Jews openly hated the Gentiles in return. In our passage today, Paul uses the word hostility to describe this relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Now, hostility is simply hatred in in the heart that spills into words and actions, and it causes separation. It causes division. And Paul is exposing the incredible hostility, the tension, the hatred from the inner heart between Jews and Gentiles. 
Now, this is a hostility that's similar to what we see today between nations. It's similar to what we see today between races even in the U.S. You can't avoid the hostility in our culture and in our modern world. And so this is analogous to what we experience. The Jews openly hated the Gentiles, and they would never help them. In fact, the Jews set laws that prevented other Jews from helping Gentiles. If a Gentile woman needed help during childbirth, it was unlawful for a Jew to help them because they would be helping bring more Gentile life into the world. Incredible. If a Jewish man married a Gentile woman, the man's family would disown him, and then they would have a formal funeral to acknowledge that he had died and he was considered and treated forever dead to the family. This hostility, this contempt, this racism is a picture of all hostility between all peoples throughout history. And we see it in modern times as well. We see it even in the U.S. The root of hostility between people groups, racism, is a sin. And we're all created equal in the image of God. And our value is not tied to our ethnicity. Our worth is not tied to our ability to contribute to society. We're not, no one's racially better than anyone. No one's economically uh, inherently more superior than anyone. We were created in the image of God, both men and women in the image of God. There's an inherent equality in all of us. This idea is unique to the Bible. You don't study science and come to the conclusion that all people were created equal. That's not what science teaches. Neither does history. History shows us that equality is not something that we ever see in the past, really. And so you would never read through history and come to the conclusion, oh, yeah, all people are created equal. There should be equality. You would never study science and, and come to that conclusion. The idea of equality is rooted in a biblical truth that we were all created by God in God's image. This idea is unique to the Bible. But we were not just created as equals. We were created with incredible diversity. God created an incredibly diverse people. Diversity was God's idea. And looking at history, we see that sin doesn't just separate us from God. Sin also separates us from one another. And God designed humanity as a richly diverse people, but sin turns our diversity into division, doesn't it? And we've all sinned. We've all experienced divisiveness between people. We've all experienced the death of relationship that sin has earned for us. And because of our sin, we've all experienced prejudices, even within ourselves, that can cause us to distrust or even dislike other people who may be different than us. Likewise, our sin might tend to draw us to other people who are like us, but often that even happens at the exclusion of those who are not. The root of divisiveness, the root of racism, is sin. The result of divisiveness, the result of racism, is hostility. This was true between the Jews and the Gentiles in ancient history, and it remains true in our modern world today. And I would propose to you, brothers and sisters, that, that this is even true in the church, this divisiveness. This is a desperate place. This is an, an ancient place where humanity always seems to find ourselves divided, separated. What is the way forward? With the division and the hatred and the separation and the violence between people groups and nations, 
and races? What hope do we have of ever seeing God's image restored in all peoples? What hope do we have of ever experiencing kingdom family? Well, the Apostle Paul in our text today, spoiler alert, tells us, and it's just one word, God's plan is Jesus. God's plan is Jesus. Look at verse 13. It says, But now in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. He says, In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. And he did this so that he might reconcile both to God and in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Here's what Paul's saying, that the root of divisiveness and racism is sin. Then if that's true, then the only solution is Jesus. Jesus is our peace. We don't wait on the government. We don't trust the government to bring peace. We can't put our trust and our faith into social movements for peace. We don't guilt others into trying to bring peace into the world or shame others or or nitpick others' vocabulary. The only thing that is going to change the divisive heart of men and women is Jesus. Jesus is our peace. Sounds good, but what does it mean? And Paul explains in verse 14, he says, For he is our peace who made both groups, both groups on both sides of the divide, made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, this is a a reference to the temple, which was where God dwelled in ancient times. God, God dwelled in one room in a temple, which was in Israel. It was actually in Jerusalem. And what had happened is that the Jews built this huge thick wall around the temple to prevent Gentiles from entering into the presence of God. Because they thought, their thinking was, well, if they're not under the law, they don't obey the law, then they haven't earned a place in the presence of God by obeying the law. And so we're going to build a wall. And on the wall, they labeled it, if you jump over this wall and you're not a a good observant Jew who would take the door, then you'll be killed. The wall at the temple was a physical barrier between Jews and Gentiles, but it represented another barrier that existed between them, the law. And Jesus says, or Jesus, through the Apostle Paul's words in our passage today, he abolishes the requirements of the law by fulfilling the law. He even removes the law, that he meets the demand for a blood sacrifice, having fulfilled the law, Having lived a perfect life, he now meets the demand for a blood sacrifice for our sins by offering himself. And so Paul is saying if you put your faith in Jesus for salvation, then it doesn't matter whether you've been trying to follow the law or not. That no longer matters. Jesus now stands in your place as having fulfilled the law on your behalf. Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his supernatural resurrection replace our need to try and justify ourselves by trying harder to please God. We no longer have to live lives trying to please others either because Jesus brings us to a place of peace with God by fully pleasing God on our behalf. In Jesus, both Jew and Gentile are made right with God and have peace 
In Jesus, both Jew and Gentile are brought near to God. There's no more wall. There's no more veil separating either of them from the presence of God. That's what Paul is saying. In Jesus, both Jew and Gentile are reconciled to one another even because Jesus has now removed the sin that caused the hostility and the racism in the first place. There's nothing to fight about. Jesus has done it all. God saves us and he invites us to him into one another together. It is in the presence of God, Christian. It is in the household of God. It is at the, the family table of God where we experience unity and peace and ethnic diversity and joyful loving of people who are radically different from ourselves. You will never experience that in culture. You will never experience it in the world. I don't care how many musical groups you can get together to, to raise money for diversity and to raise money for, to, to help our culture grow more tolerant of one another. That is never going to happen outside of the dining room around the table with God and with a kingdom family. It's a picture of the kingdom of God with God, with one another. Jesus is our peace. There's no other peace. There's no other hope for racial reconciliation, relational reconciliation, or anything else. His vision for the church is for us to be a multi-ethnic body of people united in Jesus Christ. God doesn't just invite similar-looking, similar-minded people into relationships with one another and in relationship with Him. No, Jesus brings enemies together people groups who are openly hostile toward one another. He brings them into loving relationships with the Father by dealing with the sin that separated them in the first place. And this loving relationship with our Father satisfies our desire for peace and hope and identity as the children of God. That's why it's so important for us to study and really sit in that place of knowing who we are in Christ. Christian, know that you are a kingdom kid radically loved by God. It'll change everything in your life. Because you're no longer trying to earn the love or earn the approval or trying to impress people or put people down to lift yourself up or withholding compliments because you somehow feel like, oh, I'm giving a little too much of myself in this moment. We are free to pour ourselves out. We are free to, free to lift each other up because we have everything we need as a child of God. Being a kingdom kid changes everything. And it even changes our relationships is what Paul is saying. Bringing hostile people, people who shouldn't be together together. This loving relationship with our Father satisfies our desire for peace and hope and identity as children of God. And then God brings formerly hostile people, opposing enemies together in Jesus. Without our identity issues to divide us, right? Me trying to impress you or I'm trying to impress them so I put you down. Or someone's always trying to impress someone. Those things are done away in the kingdom of God. We're, we're new creations in Christ. We don't, we're not trying to impress anybody. And you, listen, here's a little seat. You're not impressive, okay? You're, you're not, no, one's, no one's like, wow, that guy really is smart. Keep talking, right? right? No, no one's impressed. God brings us together in Christ and removes the dividing wall of hostility, removes the need for like, I'm begging and begging for a compliment and I've got really clever ways of doing it. You don't need to do that anymore in Christ. Church, this is kingdom family. That once enemies would be able to experience deep, trusting family relationship with one another 
and with God. And our passage today says that Jesus has torn down these dividing walls between us. It means that whatever walls exist in our hearts as Christians, these are walls that we have built. This means that God is offering to tear those walls down today. These walls that we've put up in our hearts as a Christian that divide us from other people, God's saying, what? Why is that there? I've removed the barrier. I've removed the walls of hostility. Guys, today God is wanting to tear those walls down. And you may not have racism in your heart. That might not be your thing. But what are other ways that you separate yourself from others who are different from you? I know in our current culture, the political divide is as wide as certainly I've ever recognized it to be. And there are people on both sides of the political spectrum that hate and can't stand and and slander other people on the other side. It doesn't matter if they're Christians. It doesn't matter if they're non-Christians. Jesus said, you will know them by their love. And so it's hard when someone says, I'm a Christian, and then they go and just slam people regardless of whether or not they're Christians, openly in public. Guys, that is sin, and that is wrong. Jesus came to tear that wall down. Even if you feel right politically, it doesn't matter. Jesus tore that wall down. He came for us to love. He came for us to sacrifice. He came to bring joy through himself, not through our ability to figure things out, not for our ability to be right about everything. Jesus, and only Jesus, removes the dividing wall of hostility. Maybe racism isn't your thing. Maybe politics isn't your thing. Maybe it's the economic divide that we see in our nation and in the world. Right? Maybe our perspective is that like people without money are lazy, or people who are rich are hoarders, or this or that. We're always creating new ways to divide and, and separate and, and become this incredibly unique person who's set apart. Listen, there's nothing unique about you in that you're different than all the rest of creation as being created in the image of God. God created you in his image just like everyone else. And in Christ, you're able to have that image redeemed. And so you can love and serve. You're fully approved by God. And so in this season, as we dive deeper into kingdom family together, this summer, man, we have to face the division. We have to face the fear. We have to face even perhaps the hostility that might exist in our hearts toward other people. It's a season of calling out old patterns that do not belong at the family table. It's a season of turning from lesser affections that divide God's family. There should be no divisions in God's family. It's a season of pressing into the newness of relationships as God's family, God's kingdom family. And for some of us, maybe it's not sin that we're harboring in our heart. Maybe it's hurt. Maybe maybe you're the one who's, who's experienced exclusion. Maybe you're the one who's experienced let being the feeling of being less than. You've been sinned against. And well, perhaps this is a season for you of confessing these hurts to God and confessing these hurts to trustworthy brothers and sister. Maybe this is a season of leaning into your kingdom family, a season of learning to walk as a child of God's family together with brothers and sisters, asking God, each of us asking God to open our hearts to other people that maybe we would have never chosen to invest ourselves in. Oh, well, there are this and that, or there are such and they believe this. They believe that I've seen the bumper sticker on his car. I don't want to talk to him, right? Like all the ways that we divide ourselves. This is a season where God is going to open your heart and you're going to find yourself face to face with people that you would never give yourself to in relationship. And God is saying, 
There's your brother right there. Go love him. Go rescue that one. Go, go get that one. Go speak words of truth into that one. The kingdom of God looks like family. Church, brothers and sisters, let's really press into all that God has for us. As his kingdom kids, as we study and, and walk through the book of Ephesians and learn what it means to be a kingdom family. Uh, this morning, uh, I want to invite Shantae up here. Um, She's super nervous, so thank you, Shantae. So Shantae is moving. She's leaving, moving to Colorado. She has been a part of our kingdom family for three years. We love Shantae. We are very much going to miss Shantae. So we've asked her just to uh, share a little brief testimony about her experience um, of, with kingdom family here at Reality Ventura. When many hear the word family... They think about moms and dads, brothers and sisters. But for some, family can mean heartache and pain. Growing up as a child of divorce, I longed to know family and experience a true and genuine love from those around me. But instead, I found pain, heartache, devastation, and betrayal. Nine years ago, my dad and I reconnected, and slowly I saw what family could be but I was hesitant to get too close. However, God's love for me through his family slowly became a true reality to me three years ago when God radically saved me from trying to take my life. Almost exactly three years ago, I came to reality and slowly got to know the various people throughout the congregation. And before I knew it, I was going to Bible studies, prayer meetings, community groups, etc., all things a self-proclaimed introvert never saw myself doing, but through all these groups, I was not only healed from debilitating physical, emotional, and spiritual pain, but I was given a new heart. I found that in God's family, it's okay to ugly cry, and that being vulnerable is being open to healing. As my relationship with my dad and family in Colorado has dramatically grown over the last three years, I can now see it's attributed to God using his people to surround me in prayer through some of the toughest times, especially over the last year. Not only was I healed from an array of medical issues last May, but this last October, I was able to stay strong and grow closer to God even after experiencing a devastating assault. God's family, this family at Reality healed me through prayer and truly opened my heart and mind to know true family. Thanks to this amazing kingdom family, I have ever overcome more hardships and pain than I will ever truly know. It's never too late to let the love of God's family heal your life, heal your family, and heal your heart. So good. And church, we've got a long way to go. Growing into family relationship. Growing into our identity as children of God. 
So now we're going we're gonna to worship God together. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And, and as we worship the Lord, what we're doing is we're recognizing who God is. God has invited us into his presence. Come. Even, even the, the non-Christians, the people that Jesus was inviting to himself, he said, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, all who have been just chewed up and spit out by life. Come to me. This morning God is calling and inviting us to him. And we get to respond to God. Not as like a, a fearful, quivering thing like you see in movies and st- stuff like that. We respond to God as children who are called into the living room by a dad who loves them. Man, when I call my kids into the living room, they, well, unless they're in trouble. <laughs> I still have young ones that are pretty good. They'll run in and they dive onto my lap and they curl up. They want the best spot. They compete for the best spot. This morning, there's no competition. God says, come to me. Come to me as a child. God wants to tear down those walls. He wants to tear those walls in you, and he wants to deal with the walls that divide you. Come to the cross. Jesus is our peace, church. There's carpets up here. If you want to assume a physical posture on your knees or on your face before God, that's why we put these carpets up here. These communion elements are up front. If you're a Christian, you've been born again into the family of God, I want to invite you to come and have communion. Take communion and remember and celebrate the new life that we have in Christ going to be some men and women up on the sides if you need prayer. They're ready and waiting to pray for you. Guys, let's respond to the Lord. Let's let this be the week that that we said, yeah, God, I'm going to trust you with my relationships. I'm going to trust you with my outlook on life. I'm going to trust you as I participate in the kingdom family.